The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, you are our steadfast hope. And while we can live in crashing waves and stormy waters and we can be at our wit's end of what's happening in this life, we can always look to you. And you are always our refuge. And you are always, as that song says, our anchor. That grounds us not in frivolous things or in unsure things, but in the sure hope of the gospel and of Christ. Father, I pray now as we turn to your word, as we continue to just look at this gospel of John, as we set our hearts on you, that we would walk out of here filled with the knowledge of you and the hope that you are a great Savior. In your name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 3. That's where we are going to be today as we're continuing in this study. And I want to share with you some of the most um, comforting words that I have read all week long, and they've come from R.C. Sproul. I want to start with this because whenever you're quoting R.C. Sproul, It can never go wrong. Here's what he says about John 3. He says, to tell you the truth, I still struggle with John 3 because there's so much to be found in it. I now believe that it is one of the most difficult texts in all of the New Testament to deal with adequately. And if the mind like R.C. is saying that, I have no hope. This this chapter, this section has... Um, surprised me. It's been one of, it's been an an, an encouraging study, and I know there's going to be a lot that we're going to glean from it. We're not going to cover all of uh, this chapter or this section today. We're going to, it's going to take us a couple of weeks, but we are going to jump into it. Now, when I first approached John 3, I know the story of Nicodemus, I thought, oh, it's, it's going to be very straightforward. It's going to be very simple. You know, it's a, it's a simple conversation. But like every conversation with Jesus, it's not as simple or straightforward as I thought. There's so much in this interaction that Jesus has with Nicodemus. He describes the, Jesus describes the purpose and intent of why he came to earth. He describes details about the atonement. He, Jesus describes union with Christ for the first time in this section. He describes what regeneration looks like. He describes his grace and mercy. He ties together these declarations of the Old Testament and demonstrates how he connects them to the new and how he is the fulfillment of them. And in saying all of that, Excuse me. <clears throat> I have to bring up R.C.'s quote because as we get into it, there's even more in this text. So I agree with R.C. that the more we're going to study it, we're going to walk out of this section and I'm going to have to say, well, there's still more, but we're going to keep going. So what is happening in this section? We get to eavesdrop in on a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And this conversation changes some of the tone of the gospel. Up to this point, Jesus' interactions have been corporate in nature. He is looking at a group of people and approaching them. He's speaking to the masses. And now, he's speaking with a single person. John 3 kicks off this series of, of more personal or individual encounters in these meetings where Jesus pierces the hearts of those whom he spoke and indicated that he knew what was going on in their lives. Jesus shows these people that he is both the universal savior, as we're going to look at in John 3.16, but at the same time he's an individual savior. 
And I, I want to just do a brief overview or a big picture view of John so that we can understand this conversation. Jesus, as, as I said, is going to approach several people along the way. He's going to go to the Samaritan woman and he's going to accept her even with her failures. He's going to go to the blind man and he's going to heal him and he's going to see, show that he has a purpose even in suffering. Jesus is going to have an interaction with a woman caught in adultery and while everyone else rejects her. And everyone else shames her. And everyone else is just trying to demonstrate how they are better than her. Jesus is going to offer forgiveness. And I point this out because each one of those interactions, we see a different tone in Jesus' ministry. We see a different tone in the gospel. There's something that we can glean from that. Maybe you are that person that needs to understand that while you may have failed like the Samaritan woman, that Jesus can accept you. Maybe you're that person who is undergoing suffering and you're sitting there going, why, Lord, was I born this way? And when we get to the blind man, we're going to see, well, because God uses suffering for his purpose and for his glory. Maybe you are the woman caught in adultery and you are sitting there saying, I am beyond forgiveness. I, you are sitting there in your shame. And when we get there, we are going to be able to proclaim that Jesus is willing to forgive you and, and it, it offers the gospel even to you. So how does Nicodemus, how is this interaction unique in the gospel of John? I, th I think this story is for the churchgoer. I think Nicodemus is in the Bible for those everyday churchgoers, for those people that live in the Bible Belt, for those people that are religious in nature, for those people that think they have it all together. I have been studying this passage this week as a churchgoer, obviously somebody who grew up in the church, being convicted by the fact that if Nicodemus needs Jesus, I need Jesus. And if Nicodemus can wrongly interpret and apply Jesus, so can I. So, I want to get us caught up on the conversation. I'm not going to read the entire thing this morning just for the sake of time. I'm going to read the section that we're going to look at, which is 3, 1 through 8. Here's what it says. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it, is with, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, I said that this text is difficult to interpret. And one of the reasons that it's difficult to interpret, one of the reasons that it baffles people's minds is because commentators disagree over why Nicodemus came to Jesus. What was his intention? What was his tone? What was the manner in which he came? There are some who say that this encounter that Jesus is having with Nicodemus is a debate. That the statements, that the structure is setting up here that 
Nicodemus comes to debate Jesus. He's, he's coming as a, as a foe that, he's, that these statements here of saying, well, we know that you're from God and we know that you do these things and blah, 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 are tongue-in-cheek where he's trying to uh, corner Jesus so that he might demonstrate, oh, well, you are a heretic or no, you're not from God or I'm going to win this debate. There are some commentators who interpret this entire section in that way. There are others who say that Nicodemus is actually a believer. That he has come to Jesus because he has seen these signs, he's heard these things, and he's truly believing and he's coming to Jesus so that he might better understand, so that he can grow in, in his discipleship and so that he can uh, grow in his faith, but he's coming as a believer. There's a third option. The third option describes him as not yet a believer, but he is wondering. He's trying to fit Jesus into his paradigm. He, he has a, uh, a historical theology, has these convictions, he knows the Bible, and he's coming to Jesus and asking, how do you fit inside this framework that I have? Well, here's the thing. Here's what makes this conversation so difficult. It's that we don't know the truth behind these questions because we can't read Nicodemus's mind. I wish that I would be able to sit down this side of heaven and say, what was your intention here? Were you arguing with Jesus? Were you believing in Jesus? Were you questioning Jesus? Why are you saying these things? But we, I, can't, I can't know that. I can't read Nicodemus's mind here. I can't know the intention. But here's what I do know. Jesus can and what I love about this section is that there's a question asked to Jesus and Jesus' answer doesn't exactly meet it. You're like, Jesus, did you hear what Nicodemus said? He didn't ask about being born again. He said, okay, we know that you're from, from God and then Jesus had, takes a 180 turn. You're like, where'd that come from? And it's because God knows the thoughts and intentions of man. Jesus can come in and he jumps into these conversations and talks about not what Nicodemus said, but what Nicodemus needs to know and what he's actually asking about. So while I don't know which one of these options it is, the commentators, as I say, disagree on, but I do know that Jesus' answer is ex the exact answer that was needed. I also know this. Jesus... When he enters into these conversations, and it's not just here, it's with the Samaritan woman, the blind man. I mean, he does this all the time where somebody asks him a question and then he answers it in a way and you're like, that doesn't make sense. But Jesus knows the hearts and intentions of man because, well, he knows all things. And it makes me think of a verse in Hebrews 4, and I often say that this is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. But I think it applies here. This is Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit of the joint and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but is all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Why do I say it's the scariest verse in the Bible? Because what that means is you can't hide from God. Your questions can't be concealed from God. Your doubts can't be concealed from God. What you're thinking and feeling and believing, God knows. But here's the thing. We don't have to fear that because God is a gracious God. And what we see here is that the living word of God, because God, Jesus is the word. The word became flesh. The living word of God, this living and active word of God is walking around on this earth. And when he answers Nicodemus's questions, he's giving him exactly what he needs to know. So in a sense, he is, he's jumping over any pretense he might have and go, this is why you're here. 
There's another important note I want to point out even before we jump into the text. Is that there is a unique flavor of things with this interaction. As I said, this story, I think, is focused towards churchgoers. Nicodemus had a very clear plan of action for his life. He thought, if I do these things, if I check these boxes, if I believe these things, I am good with God. And they were, they were reasonably held convictions. I mean, he and the rest of the Pharisees studied the scripture deeply. They wanted to honor the Lord. They wanted to, to, to serve him the best they could. But when Jesus comes on the scene, what Jesus does is he blows up their plans, their paradigms. And he's going, Jesus, you don't make sense with the worldview that we have. And what we get to learn from Nicodemus is that Jesus, when he steps in, what he is telling Nicodemus is, listen, I don't fit into your plans. Rather, I'm the only plan. You, 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 you're not here to try to figure out how this works with your worldview. I'm here to inform you the worldview that you're supposed to have. So while he might have some very well-intentioned ideas of how the world should go and what salvation looks like, Jesus, what he says is, listen, you don't understand how salvation operates. It's not what you do, it's what you believe. And so it is very difficult for Nicodemus to unpack everything that's going on here. I think that's enough um, uh, introduction for this passage. I want to jump into uh, this text again and unpack these opening statements from Nicodemus. Maybe we can figure out some of the intention that he has behind talking with Jesus. It said, this, he goes, okay, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God and that no one can do these things unless God is with him. This opening statement tells us a lot. First, the Pharisees all have agreed that Jesus is important. He, he is doing things that they need to figure out what's, what's going on. They, they realize that they know something about Jesus, or they think they knew something about Jesus. The first thing they say is, okay, Rabbi, Nicodemus is willing to give Jesus a, um, a, a position of honor in their structure. Rabbi means teacher. And with the Pharisees, a rabbi is somebody who is a leader, who is a teacher, who is going to be instructing. There are people who looked at Nicodemus and said, well, you are a rabbi. So they, they realize that, okay, you deserve the position of rabbi. And one sense he's saying, we are prepared to welcome you into our club. Jesus, you are here and, and we can honor you and demonstrate that, yes, you have done these good things. So we are willing to give you a title that we view as honoring. He also goes on and says, okay, we know that you're a teacher come from God because we see the signs that you do. I've actually skipped over a, a, a section of text that I, I want to go back and read. It connects the um, cleansing of the temple that happened in Jerusalem at the Passover with this section. It says this at the end of chapter 2. This is 22, 23. This is 2, 23. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his names and they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. We looked at the cleansing of the temple the last time we were in the Gospel of John. And here, 
John now, in kind of a wide brushstroke, says, and he did other things while he was in Jerusalem. He did other signs. He did other uh, miracles. He did other things that caught people's attention. And so he's creating this crowd around him, this buzz around him. Here's this guy that's now on the scene doing things that no one else has ever done. And Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees observed all of that being in Jerusalem during the Passover. And they're saying, okay, clearly you're doing things that I can't do. You're doing things that are miracles. You're doing things that the average person cannot do. So clearly, you must be from God. Well, here's the problem. Nicodemus is willing to show honor to Jesus, but he's, it's, it's, it's the wrong honor. You see, what, what, really what he's saying is, well, we're willing to call you a prophet sent from God. Like, we're willing to say that you're like Moses or you're like Elijah Oh, you're like Jeremiah. Those people that we honor, those people that, that we, we praise because the Lord used him. We're willing to say that you're like God. The problem is, he is God. He is the God incarnate, the, the God who made flesh. He's truly God and truly man. It makes me think of Hebrews 3. When the writer of Hebrews is describing this connection, maybe hoping so that the, the, the hearers of this sermon don't make the same mistake, he says this, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confession and our boasting in our hope. Just the Pharisees got it all wrong. They came to Jesus to give honor. Nicodemus came to Jesus to honor him. But I don't know if Jesus felt this, but he should have felt slighted. He should have actually said, um, he, he should have been offended by this. Because Nicodemus goes, you're like one of us. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not like one of you at all. Nicodemus is trying to put him into his paradigm. Okay, you're like one of our rabbis. Okay, you're like one of our prophets. Okay, you're like one of us. And Jesus, he, he could have gone, I am nothing like you. This is like, this is like the, the peewee little league team that's named the Braves trying to take the honor and the glory of the Atlanta Braves. Like two different things here. You might share the same name. You might have the same uniform on, but you're not it. So Nicodemus is trying to come and, and go, okay, how do you fit into my plans and my paradigm? And what Jesus does is he jumps over all that and says, I don't fit into it at all because you've missed it. So what does Jesus do? Well, Nicodemus says one thing and Jesus seemingly does another. He responds Truly, truly, and as I said before, this is, you, you could say amen and amen. This is, this is a way to emphasize the truth of this. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
I wonder how Nicodemus, how like the flow of the conversation at this point, I wonder how he heard that. Because it says, then he said to him, how can a man be born when he was old? Jesus has this line, truly, truly, I say to you, one cannot be born again unless he sees the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is saying, well, one, I didn't ask that question, but that's okay, that's what I'm here for. Two, born again? What does that mean? How, how can I be born again? How can a man be born when he was old? He can't enter a second time into his, into his mother's room and be born. And he's going, that makes no logical sense. I'm sure Nicodemus is going, I mean, I've heard some rumors that you say some weird things and some people are wondering if you're a little crazy over here. That's crazy. Born again? I, I heard this article this week, or I was reading this article this week, and it was over the oddity of Christian language. And it was written towards pastors in such a way it was saying, hey, just understand that not everyone knows the vocabulary of church. And I have to admit, there's some weird vocab words in church. I mean, I, I, some people have come in and said, you, you have, there's a lot of isms in this place. You have a lot of weird words. I mean, like, well, how about hypostatic union? I mean, that's a weird one. Or how about transubstantiation? That's a weird one. Or how about infralapsarianism? What is, what is that supposed to mean? I mean, we, we can have a lot of weird words. Imagine for a moment. I say born again, and we all get that. That one, that one has lost some of its oddity because it's so used around here. But this is the first time that Jesus said this. This is the first time somebody heard born again. That doesn't compute. How does that work? I think you can only be born once. That's physically impossible. That's what Nicodemus is feeling here. Come again, Lord? Born again? So Jesus continues. He answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. I mean, at some point you'd be like, Jesus, come on, give him a break. He's going to marvel. The wind blows where it wishes and, it hear, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's interesting that Nicodemus questions what it means to be born again here. And he goes to the natural are you saying a man has to enter his mother's womb again? Because the, the Greek word here for again must be born again means from above or from a higher place. So the, the, the other way to translate this is you have to be born from above to enter the kingdom of heaven. The hard part is if I tell somebody to be born from above, they're going to go, I can't do that. I'm not from above. I don't have that power. So... There's this, I can feel the, the inability laying upon Nicodemus of like, I can't do that, Jesus. Just stick with me for a moment. The first question that anyone asks when they enter a new religion is what must I do to be saved? When, when somebody is going to go find a new ideology, a new thought process, a 
new religion, they are trying to answer this question of what can I do to be saved, to be satisfied, to be happy, to, to have peace. I mean, that's all in the same thing. And most religions, or not most, every other religion is going to give you a list of things to do. Think of whatever religion comes to mind. There's going to be a list of things that you have to do so that you can be saved, so that you can have satisfaction. Now think about the Gentiles in the Old Testament that came to Israel and wanted to become proselyte Jews. There was a list of things for them to do. You should be baptized. You should be circumcised. You should follow our laws. You should go to the temple. You should do these things. Nicodemus is used to operating in a religion of doing. This is what you do. This is what we do to be saved. This is the paradigm, the plan that he is operating in that he's trying to fit Jesus into. Jesus, what must we do according to you to be good with God? But Jesus just offered Nicodemus something that he can't do because he can't be born from above because he doesn't control above. In in essence, it's like you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless something acts upon you. He's given a passive command in the sense of you have, this has to happen to you, but he can't do that. So Nicodemus is now going, how does that work? Jesus explains it. Unless one is born of water and spirit, notice it's not saying unless one births himself by water and spirit. No, unless one is born by, unless somebody, somebody creates that birth in you by water and spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Also notice how Jesus changes some words here. The first time he says, see the kingdom of God. Now he goes, enter the kingdom of God. It's not just seeing, it's entering. It's not just observing it. It's being a part of it. So if you're going to be a part of it, you have to be born from water and spirit. We're back to one of those sections in John 3 that makes this difficult to interpret. In fact, this is the section that R.C. said... I don't exactly know what's going on here because this description of water and spirit isn't seen a lot in Scripture and is not seen a lot in the Old Testament. So how do we enter this? Now, I, I, I'll just say this to maybe like our Church of Christ brothers and sisters, this is not a justification for baptism being a requirement for salvation. That's not what's going on here. But this is an odd description of things. But I think there's one Old Testament text that sums up what's happening here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that text is Ezekiel 36. So if you will turn there with me, I want to read that section. And I think we're going to see this water in spirit on display in our salvation. I'm going to back up and read some of the context. I think you got time for it. Just to, some historical context. Israel is in exile because of their idolatry and disobedience to the Lord. They have, in some respects, made a, lo- a laughing stock of God because, you know, their enemies came in and saying, who's this Yahweh dude that you're worshiping? Well, you're not obeying him and you're also not obeying these idols very well. And look what's happened to you. you. You've been kicked out. Clearly, you're not being blessed. Here's what Ezekiel says. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord 
declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my, my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I mean, uh, off the bat, this language here is, you can't do anything, but God is going to do it. What's he going to do? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. You have to be born of the water. This cleansing, what's it saying? That you are sinners, we are sinners. That, there's, that, that sin has to be cleansed, has to be um, reconciled. We have to be cleaned up. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the new covenant and language on full display. And what this is saying here is the way that you can be born again the way that you can be born from above, the way that you can have peace, the way that you, can, that, that you will receive the gospel is by God acting upon you. Is by you being cleansed, not by yourself, but by him. It's that a new spirit being put in you, not that you transform the old spirit that is in you, not that you clean up the old spirit that's in you, not that you work hard to obey some laws and therefore you can get to a point that you will be saved. No, rather you will be cleansed and you will be given a new heart and my spirit will be in you. He describes the beauty of the new covenant and the beauty of our union with Christ in this first section. But he continues because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He, he acknowledges, listen, you have to have a, a physical, earthly body. And that which is born of physical and earthly things, that which is born in the first Adam, is dead. You can't save yourself. It's flesh. But that which is born of the second Adam, that which is born of the spirit, is spirit. Jesus knows all things. He knows the hearts and thoughts and intentions of man. And before Nicodemus could ask, what? How? Huh? Do not marvel that I said to you. I, he just immediately, I'm, I'm sure he can just, his mouth's open. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Essentially what he's saying is, I know you can't figure this out. I know you had the question of how and why. But there's no answer to how and why on this, on, on this side of this paradigm. How and why? Because the Spirit acts. And because God chose. Notice, there's nothing on human intentions of because you were good enough, because you believed enough, because you did. No, the Spirit acts and God chose. That's how and why. Recently, the Barner Group did a survey of churchgoers. I actually did a survey of, it, it was a general survey, but it was for church information. And they polled a vast amount of people, asked them several questions. And for the first time in our nation's history, I guess, those individuals who say that they are nuns, that they don't believe anything, they're not part of any religious affiliations, equal that to Protestant Christians. It's 23% on both. And I heard a conversation this week about why is that so? 
Why, for the first time in history, are people willing to acknowledge that they don't believe in a God? Why is atheism on the rise? And one of the things that they said was because intellectualism is on the rise. And what they have been able to observe is that the more information people learn, the more scientific discoveries occur, the more that we can figure out elements of life, we have less of a need for faith. Nicodemus was said, was told, well, you don't know where the wind comes from. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from. That was true then. They had no idea if it was going to be a windy day tomorrow. They had no idea if it was going to rain in two days. They didn't know what the temperature was going to be. They didn't know these things because they didn't have those scientific discoveries of Doppler radar and however else that happens. Today, we can open up, I can open up my iPhone and see what the temperature is going to be in 10 days. And it's pretty good. Sometimes. Well, when you can start to figure those things out, it's easy to start to say, there's no God. We don't need God. I don't need to trust in him. We can do this ourselves. I was thinking this week. There are, there are certain things on, on this earth that I, I can figure out how it operates, how it works. I, kinda, I have a mechanical brain like that. I like to figure out how things work together. But there's something, there's a lot of things, but there's one thing that has always baffled me. And that is the bladeless Dyson fans. Have you seen those things? It's a hole and it produces wind. And if you're an engineer out there and you know how to do it, don't tell me, I don't care. I do care, but I, it's a hole. There's no fan blades. Every way that we produce fan is we fan something. We, we have an object and it moves the air and it produces air and here's this fan that just sits there and wind comes out one end of it. And how does this work? Well, it can be very easy for us to look at those things and go, well, if we can produce that, who needs a God? If we can figure that out, why should, why should I trust in anything? Why should I trust in anything that I can't understand with my hands, with my mind, with my reason, with my logic? Why should I ever just believe in blind faith? That's the struggle that we have, though. We can figure out a lot of things. We can figure out how the wind blows and where it's going to go. We can figure out our weather forecast 10 days from now. We can figure out a, a, a lot of things that make our world a better place. But we are never going to get to a point that we can figure out why is water and spirit poured out on some and not poured out on others? Why is it that God saves us not from the works of our own hands, but because of his good grace? Why is it that we can sit here and we can try to be the best possible Christian that we can be, that we can grow up in the church, that we can do all the right things, that we can never be the adulterous woman, that we can never be the blind guy, that we can never be the Samaritan woman, and yet we need the same grace and mercy and faith that they do. This is why Nicodemus is for us churchgoers. Because he comes in and he goes, God, I'm on the path towards glory. I'm on the path toward salvation. I'm on the path. How do you fit into my paradigm? And Jesus goes, you're not anywhere close, buddy. The path is over here. The path is by grace through faith. The path is in me. The path is not fixing your life and making it better. It's being given a new life. The path is not applying yourself. It's saying, I can't ever be good enough. I always have to trust in Christ. Christ. 
There are some of you out there that are really, really smart people. And there's some of you out there that maybe wouldn't put you, maybe wouldn't put yourselves in that camp. And there's some of you out there that have blown it. I mean, blown it hardcore, and you hope in your shame that your neighbor or your friend, maybe even your spouse, never realizes how much you've blown it. And then there are some of you that are sitting there saying, by the grace of God, I haven't blown it. But here's the thing. We all need the same grace and faith. We're all equal. So Nicodemus comes in and says, okay, how are you going to save us Pharisees? And Jesus goes, you, you missed it. It's by grace through faith for everyone. I know we're ending in the middle of this conversation. We'll, we'll pick it up next week as we look at a lot of other great things. When he starts off by going, you're a teacher of Israel and you can't figure this out. That's a, I feel bad for Nicodemus in this. <laughs> I just I want to acknowledge that at the end of this, it, it doesn't give a response of how Nicodemus walks away from this. So in the same way that we're, we question, how did you come into this conversation? We don't know how he left it either. I think that's because this conversation is for us and not necessarily for him. Let's pray and we can take the Lord's table together. Father, thank you for the gospel, for faith. Lord, there are some of us that like to figure things out that maybe in our quietest moments are even willing to, to acknowledge that we're, we are so thankful that we have not blown it and that it looks like pride. Lord, there are some of us that just need to be broken and see ourselves as the needy sinner that the next guy is. And Father, I pray that wherever we are, however we are approaching Jesus, first, I want to acknowledge that he is, he is big enough to handle that. His grace is sufficient for all of us. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone in the room this morning or listening that, that needs to be brought to a moment of conviction, that their hearts need to be broken, that their eyes need to be open to the truth of the gospel, that need to get to a point of saying, I can't save myself. I have to run to the grace of Christ that you would graciously lead them there. Father, thank you that we get to step up here and hear the truth of the gospel that it's not based upon our hands, it's based upon your hands. And we don't trust in what we have done, we trust in what you have done. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.